0: Uh, thanks for coming today. I'm Charles Clace, a partner in the MA group at Little. Uh, presenting with me today, I have uh, Paul Garland in our IP team. Uh, Paul will be talking about IP due diligence on te- technology and digital media businesses. I also have Andy Knapp from Black Duck Software. We've worked with Andy and Black Duck Software on a number of open source diligence projects. Andy will be talking about due diligence and open source software, and sharing some of the experiences and war stories of Black Duck software in the US and Europe. And also I have um, Andy Mosby, a partner of mine in the m group at Kemp Little, and he will be talking about due diligence and integration. I think what's really interesting about the people presenting today is that they've seen due diligence and integration projects on both sides for both the buyer and seller, and on simple small deals as well as larger complex deals. They're going to be sharing some of their experiences and key things to remember when undertaking due diligence. So I think the first question is why are we talking about due diligence and integration today? Well since quarter one 2010 there's been a steady pickup in deal activity in the UK and European mid and lower market as well as some of the larger big buy side deals that we've seen in the US. The smaller deals are the type of deals that we're going to be focusing on today um, for buyers, the increase in M&A activity has led to more competition on deals. Even when the buyer is originating a deal, we're seeing sellers go through some kind of process with other possible buyers to ensure that they're getting best value. We're seeing higher valuation multiples and we're seeing an ever-increasing focus on delivering an efficient and focused due diligence exercise identifying material risks and facilitating the acquisition and the integration. So. If you're involved in the due diligence project, from a practical perspective, what should you be thinking about in managing the due diligence exercise? Well, as as well as the standard due diligence items, uh, which you're no doubt familiar with, um, our experience suggests you should be paying particular attention to integration, which Andy's going to be talking about, um, IP, and if applicable, open source uh, regulatory issues. These sometimes come at you quite left field. So we've seen uh, medical, uh, We've seen sort of medical devices um, and sort of healthcare technology and software being regulated as a medical device. um, And that's been quite a left field issue on a couple of deals I've worked on recently. And there are also a number of things you should be thinking about in managing a due diligence project uh, from a practical perspective. So uh, what are the practical things you should be bearing in mind? Well, uh, making sure everybody understands the purpose of the acquisition. Uh, you'll be surprised how many deals we've been involved with where people haven't actually understood the purpose of the acquisition and uh, technology business has been bought and there's been a lot of attention, for instance, on a license of a property, whereas the sort of key risks and material issues in the acquisition are, are, are being missed. So I think it's very important that everybody on the diligence teams understands the purpose of the acquisition and any issues that the buyer is aware of. It's important to make sure that uh, plans for the target are clearly communicated. Any possible impact for the buyer is also clearly communicated to the diligence team. And uh, just as a sort of, uh, as a practical tip, it may be possible to identify key issues early on through management presentations by the buyer to the legal due diligence team. Uh, Next thing to remember is just to pull together an appropriate team uh, to undertake a due diligence exercise. Uh, The buyer will need to assemble at an early stage a core internal team with appropriate external professional support. Uh, The mix in the team between internal members and professional service providers will very much depend on the sophistication of the buyer, complexity of the target business and the deal size. We're frequently seeing deal teams including accountants, uh, lawyers, um, open source diligence providers where software is being acquired, uh, investment bankers sometimes, uh, management consultants. Uh, if you're managing the due diligence exercise, um, coordinating these teams and putting in place appropriate engagement letters and getting estimates from everybody uh, can take up an inordinate amount of time. So that should just be built into the project plan. Um, as a word of warning, um, if if you, the target is a competitor of yours, um, do, do be keenly aware of the risk of information sharing from a competition law perspective. And also how uh, the NDA could uh, come and bite you later on, um, particularly if you pursue, uh, decide not to pursue the acquisition. Uh, we have seen uh, situations where um, a buyer's looked at acquiring a business, uh, put in place an NDA with the target company, decided not to pursue the acquisition, and the NDA has been used as a tool to try and get some sort of competitive advantage by the target business later on. I think it's very important that um, the, it's clearly communicated to the diligence team how deal risks are going to be presented to the board of the buyer or whoever's making the uh, decision at the buyer. Uh, so they need to understand um, how, how they should be presented and graded. Are, are, are the deal risks ordinary course of business issues? Are they actual deal breakers? I think that's very important that that, that, that is communicated quite clearly early on so that you get a usable diligence report. I think it's also very important, and perhaps most important, to ensure that there's a clear understanding of the interaction between the sale and purchase agreement and due diligence. So, the due diligence exercise will uh, set the warranties and indemnities, the conditions to closing. It will often set how the consideration is structured, how an earnout is structured. It will enable the buyer to assess uh, disclosure and how disclosure has gone, and whether there has been full disclosure of all the items identified during diligence. And just as a word of warning, if the seller has got a data room um, or a virtual data room, um, it's probably going to be pushing for general disclosure of everything in that data room. Now, if the buyer decides not to actually review everything that's in the data room and it's later on agreed that there's going to be general disclosure of the contents of the data room, uh, the buyer's either got to accept some deal risk on this, which is probably going to be unacceptable, or actually go and review the remaining contents of the data room, which can actually delay the acquisition. So I think sort of early on, you need to formulate a plan as to what you're looking at in the data room. And if you're not looking at everything, quite clearly communicate that to the target company and make sure that's reflected in the uh, sale and purchase agreement and what's generally disclosed. I think from a target company's perspective, you do need to understand um, how due diligence is going to be managed at the target company. Quite often, when you're doing a smaller, a smaller deal, uh, due diligence will actually be provided by the management team. They're not going to have the same infrastructure as, as, as the buyer, in all likelihood. Um, so, and quite often they will, won't actually be that familiar with the process. So you do need to uh, um, understand um, what the management team of the target company is potentially going through, and that shouldn't mean that you're conducting a lighter due diligence exercise, but it might inform. Uh, both your approach to the diligence exercise uh, and also mean that you, you you should be explaining why you're asking certain questions. So now I'm going to hand over to uh, my partner Paul who's uh, going to talk about
1: um, IP uh, and diligence. Thanks Charlie, good morning everyone. So I tend to get involved in, in these deals when there's a, an IP element which thankfully we normally get to find one or two. Um, uh, it is an area though where you can spend an awful lot of time and effort and waste an awful lot of money if you don't prepare in the right way and if you don't analyze what's key in the business that you're trying to acquire. But similarly, if you do that and if you prepare well and if you're quite specific and focused about what you're looking for, it's an area where you can really add an awful lot of of value in terms of the DD process, both in terms of flagging up risks, but also helping shape the warranties and the the pricing and all the rest of it. So um, we thought we'd spend a little bit of time looking at um, IP in, in, in the due diligence process. Of course, any target that is a software, hardware, e-commerce company, something like that, there's going to be a large proportion of their assets and their value uh, in in IP, whether that's code, branding, uh, the data, uh, any kit that they're producing, uh, all of which will obviously have have IP, which you you need to look at quite carefully. What's happened over the last uh, year or so as deal flows increased, but the focus on keeping costs in the DD DD process down has has remained, and and perhaps got even more acute, is is a focus on real smart DD analysis, so really identifying what is absolutely key about the company that you're trying to to acquire, be it current uh, generation of revenue or future product lines, that sort of stuff. So really identify what matters. Unlikely to be the marketing material, uh, or some presentation stuff, but it may well be some key code uh, or, or key, key piece of equipment or something coming out of the R&D centre. And when you've identified that, really drilling deeper into those areas and those areas alone, spending that's where you're spending your time and money. So, focusing on what the key product components are, how were they developed, what processes were involved, and particularly who by and, and when. Frequently, things will have evolved, particularly with fast-growing technology companies. Stuff will be done by the founders before the company was formed. That have brought other people in at times. The corporate structure might have changed around a bit, and you'll find that things are a lot less neat and tidy than perhaps you would have ideally liked. And that, you know that's a theme throughout. There's often a disconnect between what the external lawyers or or the, or the acquirer would like to see in terms of neatly packaged IP policies and, and and scenarios, as opposed to what's happened in the real world, where a company has grown and just developed its products as quick as it can and, and in a in a way that uh, maximises the revenue. Um, And then having identified those rights you need to have a go at understanding what actually protects them who owns that protection and how strong that protection is and all of this is really important because it can go very wrong um, and if you don't have the rights after the deal's been done to continue the business let's say there's a key license of third-party software that's embedded in a code that you're selling the target's selling and that deal that that uh, license terminates um on change of control or something like that then obviously that's can have a huge impact you may have to then go back renegotiate get a worse price etc or more what more worrying uh rights that you've identified as being key have particularly in the early days of a developing business perhaps been licensed out to a customer that obviously that urge to get revenue coming in often people do early deals where perhaps they'll do it on an exclusive basis or they'll allow access to source code um, and then as the business model develops, they tighten things up, but they're fettered by that original deal, which is in principle causing quite a lot of problems. And the last thing to watch out for is, is, is the third party claims. And that's, I'll come up to it in a bit more detail later, but it's an area that really, I think, warrants a bit more analysis. You, you, you often will uh, focus on the IPR and the assets of the company you're buying without spending perhaps enough time at times on what other people own. Are there other things out there that people could use against the target? Uh, to prevent the continu- continuation of the business, um, be it patents, be it code that they've got a license to. So when doing IP due diligence, I, I, I just tried to split it up into uh, both registered and unregistered rights here just to take you through some of the analysis that we would we would commonly do. And, and there's the different types of rights throw up different uh, problems. If you look at registered rights, so patents, trademarks, design rights, and we normally throw in domain names at, at, at that point as well. So things that are, there, there is uh, a, a something on a register somewhere, a certificate, an application form, that sort of stuff where, so it means it's relatively easy to establish uh, ownership. You've normally got a certificate or an application process so you can identify who, who owns it. Um, quite commonly, it won't be in the right name, but at least that gets flagged up pretty easily and you can tidy things up or get the, get the target to do it. The only real danger in terms of ownership is entitlement claims. so somebody else comes along and says, well, it might have been registered in your name or applied for in your name, but actually I invented that, or it should be owned by a different company. So those things are to watch out for. But ownership relatively easy. What's much harder for registered rights is trying to establish some sort of val- uh, validity and value assessment. Take patents, for example, you'll often be asked a question as to, well, they've got this patent. Is it valid? How much does it is it worth? And that's a very difficult question to answer, if you, if you can at all. Um, And actually, the expense and the fact that you never really get a complete answer to the validity of patent, for example, because it is something that needs to be tested in a court and and, and, and for you to get a proper answer, means that often you'll be hesitant to go down that route. So what we tend to do is have a look at actually what that patent, for example, is being used for. If it's just something that the company's filed as it's gone along as part of a defensive thing, capturing its R&D, all good stuff, but actually it's not really part of any revenue stream so it's not being licensed out or it's not core to the product range then you might just want to do the title checking and, and no more um, but obviously if it's the basis for revenue streams if there are pattern licenses or uh, it's integral then you might need to have a go at actually looking at what that pattern covers and you can go on to do other things like prior art searches look at the landscape and see what other patterns are out there and how the patent that, that you're looking at fits in it starts to all become much more expensive and much more detailed so you wouldn't want to do that unless it's a key a key asset and the same the same with trademarks I mean you you can do a lot more and a lot cheaper with trademarks in terms of searches etc um, and get a better feel for validity but again you never really know until, it, until it's tested flip side to that is the unregistered rights uh, so we're talking about copyright database rights things like confidential information where it's much harder to establish Ownership on the face, because there's no title documents. Generally, there's no registration system, um, and where there you need to check the chain of the contract. How are these things formed? Who did it? What was their position when they did it? Uh, Etc. However, when you look at validity and value, it becomes a much easier thing. I mean, if you've if you've got a piece of code or a document that someone's written, there's unlikely to be much debate about whether copyright has arisen in that. So, so validity is much easier to assess. Value kind of comes between the two stores. It, it, again, if it's something which is the subject of a license or being sold as part of a product, you can start to get a good feel for the value of, of, of that. So, you know, a code base that's being licensed out and you've got a revenue stream, that's copyright work that you can see start to assess. Uh, and if it's being used, there's obviously other examples where there is no value attached to it, particularly, I used the example of marking material before, or confidential information, quite hard to assess the value of it. So really getting a feel for what's important with the business what do you want to drill down and bearing in mind what's what's proportionate and what sort of uh, what's what's worth spending a lot of time and effort uh, will of, often will always depend on the company so this is just drilling down a little bit further um if you've done that analysis and you've got your key product or, or the components of a key product that you've identified so say there's a big software suite there's one area which is really hot, very interesting, and that's why you're buying the company, you've identified that, then you want to go through the process in more detail and actually really identify who internally was involved in the creation of it, what were their terms of of employment, where did they do it, what law was the terms of employment covered, hopefully all of that's fine and whatever they create in the course of their business gets swept up into into the company that you're acquiring. Traps then to watch out for are things like consultants coming in where their contracts might not be so so uh, so robust, and there it's less likely that the IP will automatically be assigned into the com- company. So you might need people to go back and get IP assignments um, sorted out. And allied to that is the external provider risk. So more commonly, codes being developed by outsourcing to different uh, providers. You might have gone to India or Argentina, I think it's the, one of the latest ones, where you... You, you've got them to produce some key bits for you. Has that all been done properly? Has the code been, tra- the IP and the code been transferred? If they're doing design work for you or tooling, or has all the IP rights and that been transferred across? Um, and more importantly, has what they've created for you actually been generated for you, or is it actually just a rip-off of something else's rights? And, you, and you've got a problem there. So looking at that quite carefully is, is important. And the last bit, um, something that Andy will, will, will touch on quite a, a lot shortly, but this concept of third-party components now becoming more and more prevalent that as companies develop stuff, they will be bolting on all sorts of easy access material, be it open source, be it code that's already can be licensed in. And how that's done is really important. So that's how the IP is generated and, and sort of hopefully put into the key product component, which hopefully is owned by the target. The next thing you want to look at is what's been done with all of that. So how has it been commercialized? What are the license terms? Has that key product component's value been destroyed or damaged in some way by the licences that have been granted? And has any security been granted over the IP rights? So bank security, any sort of encumbrances on it. And are there any claims? Are there any lingering rumbles, whether there's anything formal or an old founder or an ex-employee saying, hang on a minute, this is not fair. I generated this before I joined you, or I did it first, or that sort of stuff. Trying to get a sense of what's out there. Are there any? Are there any worries? And then back to that third-party component point. What terms are you using those third-party uh, components under? You've licensed in some stuff. It's now integrated. It's key to the product or the hardware or whatever it is. You have to have it as part of the product mix. What terms? Uh, what, what, what was it? Was it granted? Can you carry on using it post-deal? Uh, are you actually going to be held hostage after the transaction to this third party for your future revenue and value. And then just returning as a a final slide to this concept of third party rights. So the scenario, the worry here is that you know a lot about the company's assets and you've done all your DD there, you bought the company and then out pops out the woodwork a a third party, another company, a competitor who claims to have some IP, some rights that prevent you maximizing the value of the business be it in a specific territory, because they've got a patent there, um, or that they say that something that the company, the target was doing earlier was it was an infringement. So it's really important. And the impact of claims is obviously very significant. It's, it's a, a huge distraction. It could significantly devalue the company. And most importantly, it could just actually bring things to a halt in certain territories if, if injunctions are... Are, are there and it's 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 not something that's covered by standard due diligence you, you tend not to start to look at the third-party activity and, and understandably because it's a big Pandora's box you're opening it up what's in there um, uh, and it can cost an awful lot of money and I think it's probably right not to look too deeply in that sort of thing where you're buying an established business that's, that's got established products or a product line has a good track record of, of innovation and, and and it hasn't had any problems um, Perhaps if you're buying something very early stage or that hasn't really been tested on the market, you may well want to deal into this a little bit more more, more detail. And how to do that? Well, the two things you probably want to look at a bit more is, is is brands and patents. Obviously, for what you're buying is a heavily branded business, particularly something like an online business, where actually the underlying uh, concept and uh, business m- business mythology is, is, methodology is is, is pretty. Uh, it's pretty standard, it's something anyone else can replicate, but actually what's key here is the brand, and that's what everyone knows, and that's what's going to um, generate the, the value. Um, doing searches at that point of third-party rights is very important, because the, the business you buy may not have done it. There may be um, territories where that name or something very similar has already been registered, protected, and all the rest of it, and actually you can start to identify areas which might be a problem. And patents are a lot more expensive to do, but you can fairly quickly start to do searches for other patents in the area that you're buying so uh, if you're buying a data and analytics a data analytics business um, that's focused in a particular uh, business sector then doing searches for that can throw up a lot of information and actually can be very valuable information both in terms of the, of, of the DD but also going forward and there obviously what you're looking for is are there any third-party patents out there which could be used to prevent either the current product or what you're being told is the next big thing coming out so not so exciting if someone's got their first patented it and actually you're gonna be walking into an infringement and that's all big 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 stuff in terms of time and, and, and money so you wouldn't want to engage in that unless you were either particularly worried very high value deal uh, or as I say it's a real new product range that, that actually what you're buying is is, is, is the future revenue um, from something that's going to come out in due course. And just for a finish, a, a, not just an excuse to get a, a funny picture up, but um, patent trolls are, are something that you just need to be aware of. So the idea here, particularly in the US, is of a non-trading company. Someone All that they've done is incorporated a company, acquired some patents for the sole purpose of asserting those against third parties. Um, this is becoming more and more of a problem for global businesses um, so particularly in the US where the threat of the court fees, the litigation costs are so significant that people will give up and just pay over license fees to avoid the headache and why this is difficult is because what patent trolls look for is very general generic patents so things covering payment systems online or uh, mouse clicking systems where actually they then have the whole world uh, of e-commerce for example um, that they can attack and it's very difficult in that scenario to do searches and to do checks Um, so that's an area that you'll hear more and more about if you haven't already Um, there will need to be quite a big development in terms of the insurance market to protect all this because i don't think it's an area where you're going to get satisfactory protection through the dd process Uh, so that's a very quick trot through uh, ip issues and I'm going to hand over to Andy, who, as Charlie mentioned, is joining us today from Black Duck and uh, talking about code.
2: Hi. So, uh, <clears throat> I'll, uh, I'll avoid any uh, extensive propaganda about the company I work for. I'll just give you a little bit of context. Um, we're an organization that provides um <clears throat> uh, open source due diligence services to organizations. Um, in the technology space, full spectrum of organizations from venture capital um, um, firms through to Fortune 500 organizations like Oracle, SAP. Um, we provide them with support and assistance during the uh, um, acquisition cycle uh, relative to, if you like, the technical debt that they're inheriting uh, from a potential um, acquisition uh, that they're looking uh, to make. We act for buyers and sellers. Um, and we participate um, in, you know, we help them understand the open source um, the, uh, composition, of the composition of the open source within their code base, the licenses in effect. Um, and once we understand the, and they understand the, the licenses in effect, the obligations associated with them provide them with um, insight to the most time and cost-effective route uh, to uh, uh, remediate. Uh, we typically operate under a three-way NDA, us, buyer, um, and seller. so um, I'm sure you'll appreciate there's a limit to what I can say in terms of specifics. So I'll, I'll limit myself today to um, observations from uh, projects that we've been involved in and um, uh, information that's been put into the uh, if you like the public domain uh, by some of our customers in this case, um, we'll, we'll talk about um, SAP. So I'll bump through fairly quickly about why we believe technical due diligence is required. Uh, some of the issues we encounter as we go through uh, the technical due diligence process relative to uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about how the process works in terms of the technology we deploy, uh, but again, I promise you no propaganda. Um, provide some data points that uh, have been provided to us by SAP. Um, a little bit around their thinking relative to open source generally, and then some of the specifics relative to the uh, m and process from an SAP perspective and then we'll summarize and uh, take any questions you, you may have. Um, so it's interesting, in the uh, in the US during 2010, we undertook um, some 200 um, M&A due diligence um, projects, as I say, for a variety of types of organizations, typically um, software vendors, embedded software vendors in the mobile space, increasing the aerospace and defense um, and uh, financial services. Um, to help them understand, as I say, if you like, the technical debt that they're inheriting um, as a result of um, an acquisition. You know, and our view is um, that you know, open source is ubiquitous. Um, we very rarely, I don't believe we've ever uh, undertaken an evaluation of a code base and not found um, open source. Um, now, we can argue about how, how material the open source we found might actually be, but for the majority of our clients, um, they will look at a target's um, management of open source at some level being kind of a key indicator for the management of IP generally. So if we find things that, are, um, that were not previously documented or understood to be in the code base, or if there's an outright denial, as there is, in certain circumstances that we use open source and then we find it, that uh, generally raises concerns on the part of the um, acquire as to the general management of IP um, mm. generally. Whilst we're going through the process, we're also able to um, provide some key indicators relative to uh, code quality development processes, the robustness of the um, open source policy uh, posture and strategy um, of the uh, uh, the target uh, as part of that. We believe open source is ubiquitous, despite what your organisation, despite what the, uh, uh, the target um, uh, may tell you. There's a growing sensitivity um, uh, in Europe uh, to um, this particular uh, issue it is, it's difficult to correct problems on the fly during the, uh, um, the, the merger process and we have seen organisations walk away from deals as a result of a lack of clarity, um, a lack of willingness to cooperate um, um, in this area. So have, we have actually seen situations where um, it's killed um, a deal uh, for, a, uh, for a buyer uh, and for the seller too. I don't think there's any surprises here in terms of, the, the, you know, if you like, the general uh, risk associated with the unmanaged use of any code. And I, don't, I think this is relevant to um, in-house development as much as it is uh, to open source. But you may inherit, through the use of open source specifically, um, some uh, licensing um, issues, um, some licenses that may not be compatible with your proprietary licenses. Um, there are export regulations relative to the um, distribution of um, certain technologies namely encryption um, that are categorized as dual use um, and uh, security uh, vulnerabilities um, that can be inherited uh, through the uh, uh, instantiation incorporation of open source um, in, in your uh, code base. So there are a number of um, risks um, uh, that we need to uh, be aware of and to uh, to manage there's a growing, there's a growing um, amount of information in the public de- domain relative to um, litigations and situations arising um, as a result of infringements of um, open source licenses. Um, you can always call you know, the uh, SFF uh, GPL violations, you can almost uh, think of them as open source trolls to use the, uh, um, the, the uh, um, expression um, that Paul used. These are people who are advocates for the open source community, and it, they make it their job to um, seek out the uh, the violators and uh, um, uh, make sure that the uh, you know, the organisations are uh, meeting the obligations of the licenses that attach to the open source that's being incorporated in uh, code bases. So, from a black black duck perspective. Uh, what we do is we will compare um, the uh, code, um, the source code within a target's code base against an open source um, knowledge base that we maintain and um, we'll be looking for matches between that and the code base. From that we're able to produce a bill of materials that tells you uh, what open source projects are there, what license obligations, security vulnerabilities and encryption um, exist with that and produce a conflict analysis against um, a um, a proprietary license or a model of the, your uh, proprietary uh, license so we can look at what um, falls outside that that's acceptable from uh, yeah, from from your perspective. As we go through that process I say we're able to drive out a number of key, uh, key indicators relative to quality that are useful, uh, code quality that are useful from the point of view of assisting in technical convergence um, both from a sort of architecture perspective but also uh, for those organizations that do have a robust uh, strategy, policy and process relative to the use of open source, uh, preparing the uh, target uh, and the buyer uh, for the process of convergence relative to that policy. Okay, so we provide a set of outputs that can be uh, used to um, help the uh, buyer produce a a risk assessment relative to um, uh, the acquisition and we can provide um, some insights to the potential level of remediation that's going to be required and insights to the most uh, cost-effective and timely uh, route uh, to um, uh, remediation. And the, sometimes the level of remediation uh, required and the to remediation is not as onerous as perhaps the buyer and seller um, expected it uh, to be. Um, and again, we can provide insight based on our experience of some uh, 200 projects a year of this sort into how that might be, uh, that might be achieved. Um, so, number of remedies. Um, I won't insult your intelligence by uh, reading, uh, reading the slides um, to you. The most obvious one is to conform um, to, uh, to the license itself. Uh, typically, um, depending on the level of risk that uh, is perceived to attach to the use of that license, um, that's something that's typically done uh, post-sale. Um, change of uh, use of the uh, Uh, The the code um, may be changing because some of these uh, technologies are dual licensed. Uh, Leave the code um, as is, but change the license you're using to a less onerous, uh, potentially uh, less problematic um, open source license. Uh, Remove the offending code. We often find that um, there's a lot of redundant code that still has obligations attached to it. Um, If we can find it, we can potentially remove it without risk to buyer. Um, or seller, and uh, you know, it's a, a uh, really co- timely, cost-effective uh, route reme- to uh, re- remediation—an activity that's uh, normally pushed back onto the seller uh, to undertake. Um, uh, kind of the option of last resort is to uh, replace the code in its entirety, um, and there's a number of different routes uh, to uh, to doing that. Um, it is potentially problematic and it is potentially damaging um, to, uh, to the deal, um, again depending on both parties' assessment of the level of risk associated um, with that, uh, uh, with that uh, code base. But as I say, typically we're able to help um, based on the application of experience from uh, other projects, um, help organisations um, remediate uh, time, uh, the most timely and cost-effective um, uh, fashion um, possible. And typically neither party wants the deal to go so. I'll talk a little bit about uh, the work we've been doing um, uh, with, with SAP. Clearly an organisation I guess everybody um, uh, knows. They've undertaken a number of acquisitions um, um, of late and they you know, they work very closely with us as a sort of deeply embedded part of their uh, technical due diligence during um, the, the acquisition. The acquisition progress, uh, program. Um, SAP as an organisation has moved um, substantially from a position of being, if you like, an open source denier in terms of adoption of open source um, five years ago to embracing open source as a sort uh, as a um, source of um, advantage in terms of um, innovation and time um, uh, to market. And in tandem with that, they, they've changed their posture relative to open source in terms of um, acquisitions. However, they do want to understand the composition of um, the asset um, uh, that they uh, that they are acquiring. And I think one of the things they report is that, um, whereas perhaps historically there was some reluctance on the part of the target to open the kimono um, and allow them to undertake a um, detailed evaluation of their code base, um, that that is changing, um, that people now expect some level of due diligence relative to the open source composition um, um, of their uh, code base and whereas before we were finding we would have to physically go to where the code was in a room with darkened windows and uh, you know locks on the door um, there's a greater willingness to kind of embrace um, this type of due diligence as part of the acquisition uh, process on the part of um, uh, part of the uh, targets and a certain amount of the work that we get involved in is educating uh, both parties in the you know um, the relative level of risk associated with um, uh, uh, being part of this uh, part of this process. So SAP um, have a uh, a due diligence process that they operate, and um, have expectations um, uh, that uh, relative to uh, their um, suppliers, that they will provide um, a statement of their ex- the, of the uh, targets expectations relative to the composition of their code base and open source within it. Um, they want to evaluate the um, uh, policy documents and uh, process relative to the use of open source so we ought to understand how you bring open source into the business, how you make sure that uh, you understand the obligations that attach to it, um, typically before you deploy it um, into a product you then distribute to um, customers and then how you make sure that you remain in compliance um, over a uh, over, over a period of um, time. So we're finding um, that more and more organisations have a documented policy and process. Um, not, uh, not enough, in our opinion, have, if you like, an automated uh, process relative to um, uh, understanding and maintaining um, um, compliance. Uh, <clears throat> but this is a key evaluation criteria from SAP's perspective. Um, they produce a term sheet. Um, they then engage Black Duck to look at the code base and provide a set of findings relative to the composition um, of, of that code base. The output of the exercise that we're involved in is then reviewed by the legal and technical teams um, within SAP and forms part of the value judgment they make relative to the technical risk associated with the acquisition. We have seen a couple of situations and um, so SAP's um, increased focus on due diligence in terms of um, their own use of open source and that of organisations they're looking to acquire was driven by the fact that they made an acquisition. Um, I think it was about 18 months, about two and a half years ago. Forgive me, where they were unable to um, physically uh, distribute product and recognise revenue um, due to some uh, licensing issues that were discovered post-acquisition. So that had a material impact on the value of their organisation, the value of, of value they derived from um, that acquisition. And we have seen them walk, and we've seen others walk from um, uh, potential acquisitions. Uh, either based on the findings, or based on, if you like, the willingness or otherwise of the target to engage um, engage in the process. Um, recently, seeing a situation where um, it, you know, it looks as though a fairly tra- fairly major transaction um, will fall over, um, you know, right at the last um, gasp because of a, a fundamental reluctance on the part of the CEO of the target to um, uh, provide the information. Um, in the format that the uh, buyer is looking for, that started to raise a broader set of concerns um, regarding this organisation's internal um, governance um, and compliance processes, and it, it seems as though that uh, um, that will uh, that will actually fall over. The part of the rationale, part of the uh, if you like, the set of objectives relative to SAP's um, due diligence is to assist. Um, them in the decision making relative to the acquisition, but also to start to position uh, the acquisition um, in terms of convergence um, with SAP more generally and with the open source um, policy and processes of SAP. So our experience is that open source is um, ubiquitous, um, I do not believe we have ever scanned a code base and not found open source uh, within the code base um, at, uh, at some level. It's our experience that it is increasingly best practice on the part of um, buyers to uh, retain the services of organizations um, like Black Duck and others um, to help them understand the technical risk, the technical debt associated with the acquisition um, that they're making, and um, that it makes sense from a potential target's perspective um, to put themselves in a position uh, where they're accurately able to identify the composition of their code base relative uh, to um, um, open source, to have a clearly stated policy for the use of open source and to regularly audit um, the processing controls uh, relative to the com- consumption um, of um, uh, open source. Uh, thanks, that Andy. Um, we could uh, have a break for uh, 10 minutes,
0: so be back uh, at um, just after. Ten o'clock, and Andy will be talking about uh, integration.
3: I uh, welcome back, everyone. Uh, I think we're all here now, so we'll we'll kick off for the the second part of this. Uh, my task today is to uh, take you through uh, the sort of last part of the, the process and deal with due diligence and post deal integration. Um, We have a limited amount of time and I wanted to make sure that there is time at the end so that you can ask further questions uh, of any of the speakers. So I'm going to rattle through this at a a fair pace. But um, I am going to be around afterwards to uh, to answer questions and talk to people if anybody does have anything further that they want to talk about. Um, What we are going to look at today is why integration is important. um, What are the risks involved? how that factors into the due diligence process, and then look at some strategies for effective post-deal integration. And at the end, look to wrap up not only um, the part that I'm talking about, but also parts from the other speakers' talks to give you a sort of top 10 practical tips to take home. So if you did miss your coffee at the break and think that you need to have a little nap uh, in this part of the session, and the strategy is probably to sleep through this bit, and then I'll wake you up towards the end, and then you'll pull everything together. So um, why is post-deal integration important and uh, because most acquisitions fail. Now before we all throw our pens down and say why are we doing our day jobs if uh, all acquisitions don't come to anything, let me qualify where that statement comes from and some of the methodologies around it. Um, Back in 2003 the Federal Trade Commission did a report on the effects of mergers and post-merger integrations where they got involved uh, four of the big US accountants firms that has a lot of data around integration and due diligence and acquisitions uh, and try to draw out some of the themes for um, how successful those acquisitions were. And then again last year a number of the uh, bigger accounting firms, Deloitte, KPMG, did a similar thing with their own databases as well. So we've got a 10-year set of data that we can look at uh, that gives us information on um, what acquisitions have taken place uh, and how many of them have lived up to their expectations. And I guess that's the key because um, what this is saying is although the statistics come back and say around about sort of 50 to 65% of acquisitions fail, what they actually mean is they fail to match up to the promise um, of what people thought they would do when they first undertook the acquisition. Um, in terms of the methodology used, they look not just at the share price of uh, the companies, although there's evidence to suggest that in the short term the share price actually goes down on average by about 13% post acquisition, but they looked at things like cross selling, cost synergies, uh, know how transfer, the efficiency of uh, the integration process, and also some of the things that are quite harder to measure around uh, social compatibility and culture change. Um, so a lot of that is fairly subjective. Uh, and it also, uh, you've got to take into account exactly what happened over the last 10 years as well. So uh, a lot of this will talk about um, deals that are taking place in 2001, 2002, um, where you've got the Dot com bubble bursting and a lot of deals tanking, um, deals that are done in the last sort of eighteen months probably haven't hit their stride yet and so are difficult to be able to measure whether they've been successful or not. And then anything that happened sort of two thousand five, two thousand six probably was just about to be successful and then Lehman's happened and meant that the market changed. So if I was going to write the um, the statement of of this, I'd probably say um, in certain studies. Uh, what they've shown is most acquisitions fail to meet expectations, particularly in a choppy market. But that's because I'm a lawyer and not a catchy headline writer. So most acquisitions fail, subject to lawyery caveat. Um, but one of the things we, we can look at is to see, get a, an inkling for kind of why integration is important, and uh, we'll come on to later what this means for success of the business. So um, for those who can't see the, the bottom ones, what this does is, uh, in a, a survey of people that um, were, were commissioned to dealt with integrations is look at when they undertook various processes for um, successful integration. So the first one is when did you think about putting in place the first outline plan of integration, Uh, evaluation of the core business, IT systems, culture differences and then at what point do you actually put in place a formal integration plan. Um, Now uh, what's good news is that uh, two-thirds of people said that they actually looked at the uh, initial development of an, an outline blueprint for integration whilst they were doing due diligence um, but if you get right onto the other side what you've got is that figure going down to about 30% uh, and then you've also got a, a slug up here um, which is about 13% that said we didn't actually do the formal integration plan until we were doing the integration and then you've got a really worrying sort of 7% at the top that said We didn't bother doing an integration plan at all. So you can kind of get a a feel for maybe why some of the acquisitions aren't successful. Um, But also integration is important not only post completion but also during the process of um, discussing and negotiating the SPA as well. If you're dealing with a a software company uh, it's pretty much standard now that a a lot of the uh, sale purchase agreements will include some sort of deferred consideration payment mainly because a lot of the value in those businesses is going to be future performance rather than upfront value. In terms of um, protecting uh, the earn out for the sellers, um, but also protecting the buyer, this is really where the lawyers come in and and earn their money, because the buyer will want to make sure that things are kept as flexible as possible, that they can run the business for the maximum amount of long-term gain, whereas the sellers are going to make sure that the buyer can't do anything really to... Um, disrupt how much they're going to earn in terms of an earnout and look for kind of short term success. So there's a bit of a disconnect between the type of things that a seller wants to see in an earnout calculation versus the type of things that a buyer wants to see in an earnout calculation. And, and what lawyers then will do when we're discussing this is to work out kind of exactly how those deferred consideration payments are calculated and that goes into what sort of costs. Uh, and what sort of um, profits actually go into that calculation, but also what protections there are for uh, if the buyer wants to do anything that goes to the heart of the business that could have an effect on the earn-out payment, is that something that they need to do with the consent of the sellers? But all of that is really difficult if no one has any idea what's going to happen post-completion. Uh, and the question is, how can you deal with what profits to include and costs to exclude, or how can you deal with exactly how to protect the sellers Uh, if you have no idea how the business is going to operate once it's been integrated. So integration planning is is key not only for what happens when you get to the integration part, but also pre-completion because it helps everybody to have a a practical earn out um, and there are going to be minimal risks on actually um, paying that earn out out to sellers or when you're a buyer knowing exactly what it is that you can and can't do during the earn out period. So you're going to look at some of the risks of integration, and uh, there are sort of four types of risk uh, inherent to any integration process. There's the synergy risks, the structural risks, uh, the HR or the sort of people risk, and then the risks inherent with the, uh, the project itself. So in terms of synergy risks, uh, you're looking at really the, what, are, what are the quality of the financial figures that you've had access to. And that comes down to really how good is your financial due diligence? Um, Is it something that you've had a long history of uh, accounts that you can look at? Um, What types of metrics are available? You've also got the complexity of the integration itself. So is this going to be something that needs to be done very quickly? Um, Is it something that actually requires a kind of full-scale business integration, more akin to a US-type merger? Or is it just a sort of bolt-on of an additional part of the company that sits quite separately from... Uh, the main business and also is your integration plan up to snuff so does everyone agree with it Uh, is there a reasonable amount of of time factored into that plan in which you can undertake that integration they're all parts of the sort of the synergy of the two businesses working together Uh, the second one is structural risks which are um, risks inherent with the businesses themselves the different business structures, if they are widely different, you have different people making very different decisions, uh, divided into different cost centres or profit centres. Cultural differences are, are kind of less easy to quantify, but they may well still be there and have an impact on integration, uh, particularly if it means that one business needs to completely change its culture in order to fit in with the wider business. And then the kind of business diversity, so are the businesses, do they share the same customers, do they share the same territories, do they share the same products, Or again, have you got wildly different businesses that are going to be operating together? Uh, The the people risk is very much around uh, who is going to get kept on um, or at what level there is going to have to be changes made. Um, The executive level shake-up really boils down for the the buyer as to the question of what shall we do with the founders um, and whether there needs to be external hires in for for key roles within the business. Uh, A change in management roles Uh, Or function can also have an impact on integration and whether there needs to be a a level of redundancies uh, that take place at lower levels or in fact anywhere throughout the structure of the business and then the fourth one is the kind of risks inherent with the project itself so if the buyer hasn't undertaken any sort of integration process before then that is likely to affect how successful that integration will be Um, similarly it can create a huge burden on not only the HR function but it's something that Probably takes management away from their operation of the business because they're concentrating on uh, the integration project rather than concentrating on running things in the ordinary course. So that lack of capacity can also have a real impact on integration. Uh, and then uh, things being done quickly. We'll we'll come on to this because that's a, a bit of a double edged sword. But. I I think you can safely say that procrastination around integration is not a good thing. So using um, one of the the Deloitte's reports that came out last year, they looked at those different types of um, uh, risk inherent to any integration and uh, where in any of the factors, so structural synergy, people or project, um, there was notified to be a high level risk then they they noted that up in one of the four categories. So things with the lowest risk were those that had no high-level risks in any of those four areas, uh, low to medium, one to two high-level risks, medium to high, three levels, and those in the highest risk had, uh, in all four areas, some sort of high risk inherent with the process. And these are the numbers of the deals that they analysed. So the majority of them are the lowest risk category, Um, But we've got nearly a third here that are medium to high, so two to three areas within that uh, integration are perceived to be of high risk. And then you've still got 16% um, of the highest risk, so that's in all four categories. And that tends to be things like um, poor visibility over finances, um, huge organisational or managerial differences, uh, resistance from top management, and no implementation plan at all. And that's interesting when you come to look on uh, what happens in terms of the successes of the deal because surprise surprise uh, those that were perceived to be the lowest risk were by far the most successful um, 75% of the cases that success whatever success meant um, was achieved in relation to those deals and as soon as one element of risk creeps in uh, the successful numbers just plummet completely and then down here where you've got the highest risk uh, 99% of uh, transactions in that category failed to live up to expectation. Um, and the bit that's interesting in in that category as well is that nine out of ten didn't have an integration plan. So a lot of statistics, but I think you know the two things that come from this are pretty clear. Um, if you want to be successful, then try and minimise the risks in integration. Um, pretty straightforward. How to make the the risks, how to make the deal less risky, um, is to plan ahead. And understand the business. So in terms of uh, due diligence and the areas to focus on really the the biggest reason that a lot of the deals tend to fail is uh, as I said if there's lack of visibility about finances so if you uncover some <coughs> huge financial hole within the business and um, that you didn't deal with in a due diligence process that's going to have a real impact on um, but also pay attention to things like IT issues uh, and compatibility and whether that is an integration of data or call centres or enterprise applications as well as the IT skill set throughout the people that are coming across to the business as well. Um, You're also going to want to look at contractual and commercial arrangements and this is a lot of what the lawyers do in terms of the DD process. Um, A lot of the um, customer contracts that you deal with might include provisions whereby there's a change of control provision that allows them to terminate or renegotiate a contract on a sale Um, If it's an asset sale then there might involve uh, consents having to be given by the counterparty in order for you to actually use those contracts. So it's up to you to sort of come up with a strategy of how to mitigate against that. Now a lot of that can be done pre-close, whether it's making sure you have those consents up front, uh, or whether it's something that you take into account in indemnities or warranties, um, but also a kind of practical strategy on what happens if some of the key customers do then pull out. Um, If you bought a business and a lot of key customers then terminate, clearly that's going to have a real impact on the success of that transaction um, and how you actually integrate that. Mm -hmm. Coupled with that is also revenue recognition, and a lot of the way in which the contracts are drafted can have real impact on how uh, a buyer can recognise revenue. Um, Particularly if you're buying a uh, a new business or a business that's um, not very, uh, very old, then they look to recognise revenue generally as early as they possibly can, whereas a more established business will generally tend to recognise revenue steadily throughout the year. Um, And a a lot of the points on revenue recognition go back to things like uh, at what point goods are delivered, so if it's a software contract, if there's some acceptance testing process, at what point can you recognise revenue throughout that uh, acceptance testing? Uh, When are fees actually determinable? So if there are ongoing warranties, if there are liquidated damages clauses, if there's anything in there that could effectively result in a refund, then at what point are you able to recognise the revenue of that contract? Um, and again that's something that you'll be talking to uh, the, the legal team in in doing the DD process. Uh, IP strategies, um, Paul and Andy sort of talked about generally, but that can be not only just uh, what IP is contained within the business and um, how IP is generated within that business, whether it comes from third parties or within, but also around kind of consistent branding, uh, and particularly in terms of integration, how the branding of the target, particularly if it is a strong brand, then fits with the branding of the buyer. Uh, regulatory compliance, and Charles touched on this to start with, but uh, it can come in in fields like financial services and healthcare, um, but also just general corporate compliance. Um, You can potentially put your own regulatory compliance at risk if the target that you acquire hasn't sorted out its compliance either. Uh, In HR, the the DD is going to reveal quite a lot of facts and figures around uh, the workforce, uh, how much they're going to get paid, um, how much um, uh, details about how long they've been in the business, and all these things that can come uh, in use when putting together a redundancy plan if one is needed. But actually there's uh, another level, and we'll come onto this on the next slide, but there's another level of um, making sure that the, uh, the employees are uh, contained within the business, their morale is, is, is kept, that um, there's a lot of the sort of stuff, soft stuff around making sure that the employees are happy, um, because you don't want to lose the key employees on integration. And then um, finally on uh, tax issues, a lot of that is really around sort of structuring post-completion, so using any available tax losses or structuring the integrated business uh, after completion so it's as tax-effective as possible. But also, as Paul was saying, there is also the possibility in looking for for IP and moving that to um, more tax-effective areas. And this is the the sort of soft stuff that I was talking about. It's uh, having a strategy for dealing with Cultural differences, um, particularly if the target is personality driven, um, how does that incorporate into a larger corporate? Um, Maintaining morale and direction is really important both for the the buyer and the target. Um, For the target you may be able to reward employees as part of the sale process, um, which is a way of getting them engaged in that process. Um, If there are redundancies, it's going to be difficult for the buyer. Um, but maybe there is scope for some sort of training um, or reevaluation scheme to help redundant employees seek uh, alternate work and then also looking at how dissimilar the compensation and the benefits are between the target and the business again just becomes important in terms of setting expectations for everybody involved in the integration and communicate I mean the, the, this is the sort of the basic tenet of everything that I'm saying it's once you have a plan uh, communicate regularly Uh, And that means not only just with HR, but everybody within the team understands exactly what it is that they're doing, understands how to get to the goal of successful integration. Um, This looks at the sort of strategies for effective integration. I've taken this from a a Horworth source. I disagree a little bit in the shape of uh, what the graph might look like. And uh, I think it will probably take longer than 90 days Mm -hmm. to have a successful integration on some businesses. But I think the general point is actually to focus on this area and this area. where there is key overlap between the deal team, the integration team and the performance team. Um, And a a lot of the clients that we've seen have completely different teams for different parts of the transaction and it can be really difficult to do a successful integration if at completion you're handed with a completion bible and said, now integrate. Um, It it also works both ways because uh, if the integration team communicate with the deal team early Um, The deal team will know exactly what to look for in terms of due diligence which can help the integration. It reduces quite a lot of the frustration out of the process because everybody can coordinate together. You're not asking the target the same question over and over again because you're dealing with it once. Uh, And it means that your assumptions on what performance and what success is are actually realistic. Um, And that may be uh, again another problem of why we say 50% 65% of acquisitions fail. Probably they don't fail, it's just that they fail to meet up to the standards that people had at the start with, and if they'd done their integration uh, planning properly, um, they may have had a more realistic expectation of what that success would be. So in terms of what you should do to ensure uh, effective integration, I've called this uh, uh, kind of unlocking the potential, um, because it's also often with, particularly with uh, corporate lawyers, to see end of the completion meeting as being the end of the, uh, the M&A process, but actually where you are is that, it only, that only buys you the opportunity to generate the value in your business. It's the integration part of it that, that delivers that value. Uh, we've touched on a, a lot of these already so I, I won't say too much about them, uh, most are fairly common sense, but picking up a couple of things, the move quickly is particularly important with IT integration. There it's it's important to actually get that IT infrastructure right rather than to just rush ahead and put in place a form of integration, um, whatever it may be. The best solution in the short term might be to actually run two IT infrastructures in parallel. It's not ideal um, but it's probably preferable to do that rather than putting in place some botched IT infrastructure integration which then takes months to rewind later. So move quickly but not too quickly. Um, and also focus on customers, and the, the, the quote that was in one of the reports from uh, a CEO of a medical products and services companies is actually really important. Um, There's no point in putting in place an efficient integration plan if what it does is just disrupt your customer base. Once you've integrated, you want to make sure that the business has <laughs> people to sell to. Uh, and if you lose customers in the process of actually doing that, then question how it could ever be a success, no matter how efficient the integration process was. Uh, and leadership is going to be important, particularly for companies that are undertaking their first acquisition. There's going to be a lot of pressure on the CEO, the CFO, um, and they're going to have to shoulder a lot of the responsibility for the deal. So uh, it's, it's important that it, it is appreciated just how much time it will take from those officers of the company. And here's the point, you can wake up. Um, I, I won't go through these in detail, but what this does is just really set out, I hope, the sort of top ten practical things from the talks that you've heard so far. Um, A lot of these are are really uh, key to ensuring that you have not only a successful due diligence process but also I hope we've shown that having a successful due diligence process is only successful if it leads smoothly into integration as well. It doesn't just end at DD. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm going to pass now back to Charles. Um, I will stay up here if anybody has any questions in the time that we've got left. uh, Please do let me know. Thank you very much.